Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, November 3rd, 2013. The share ID number for Friday's meeting, November 1st, is 5391. This morning's topic is Step 3, Made a Decision to Turn Our Will and Our Lives Over to the Care of God as We Understood Him. Now that you've admitted you're powerless over food and you've come to believe that a power greater than yourself can restore you to sanity, you're ready for Step 3, a decision to turn your will and life over to the care of that higher power. Joining us this morning to speak about Step 3 is Ruth, a recovered compulsive overeater from St. Louis, Illinois. Ruth is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous, intensively working with other compulsive overeaters and carrying the message that, indeed, there is a solution. There is a way out. And it is now my pleasure to welcome Ruth to the line. Good morning, Ruth. Okay, well, welcome everybody. I'm Ruth, and I'm a compulsive eater. And uh, anyway, so I would just like to say that uh, in the tradition of how I was taught, mostly by Joe and Charlie and some other great big book thumpers, uh, anytime we do something, we kind of start with just a real quick review of where we got to to here. So um, also, too, if anybody causes, if there's some static and for some reason there's a problem, let me know uh, because we've had that in the past. So I just want to make sure I know what I'm doing. Anyway, so um, starting with the 12 steps, according to Joe and Charlie, they said that there are three things that this book is going to teach us, and they're very vital. They're ancient problem-solving method. It's been going on millions of years in humanity. And the first question is it's going to answer what is the problem. We don't know what the problem is. We will have, in fact, built a house on sand. There will be no cement foundation. We don't know what our problem is. So we can't work the rest of the steps as they're meant to be worked. It's very clear in the big book and all the other literature in AA. You can't work, you can't work the steps unless you work each one in order. So you have to know what the problem is. And the problem is step one, which is lack of power, powerlessness. We have a lack of power, something. With alcoholics, it's alcohol. And with us, it's food. There are certain key food ingredients that we're powerless over. We have to know that. When I say no, I don't mean in our head, but we have to know it in our heart. All steps have to be taken in the heart, not in the head. And so we can try to make it happen, but you uh, can't make it happen because that's your thoughts that are trying to do it, not your heart. Um, Once we know what the problem is, then we desperate to know what the solution is because we are utterly powerless, despair. You can go to Bill's story on page 8 in the summer of 34. He's when he took step 1 and he talks about the bitter morass, the quicksand, uh, the complete defeatism that he had. It's not usually a pleasant skipping through the tulips. Oh, I think I have a problem. That's pro- you haven't taken step 1 very likely. So once one knows what the problem is, they want to know what the solution is. And I joke that the solution is found in a chapter called There is a Solution. And it's found on a page that says in italics on that page, There is a Solution. They hid it so we wouldn't find it. I mean, but in reality, that's where we'll find it. There is a solution. And we'll tell us what the solution is. And that's the second question. What is the solution? 
So the first question is, what is the problem? Which is step one, powerlessness, lack of power. And step two, what is the solution? And it's the power. Because if the problem is powerlessness, the solution is power. But this power has to be greater than us, power greater than ourselves. And people call it a higher power. You may give it a, a religious name. It really does not matter, but it has to be something greater than you. So if the problem is lack of power, the solution is power. Well, what, how do you go about getting that? How do you go about getting that? Well, those are steps three through 12. And three through 12 will tell you exactly how to get the power. Since you don't have it, you're never going to get it. Then you will now know what the problem, you know the solution is, and then you'll do all your efforts to obtain this power. If you look at steps four through nine, it's to obtain the power. And steps 10 through 12 will improve that power that you have. Um, so when we look at these three questions, and we, and we look at um, really what is the problem, I have, talk, I have talked about that in a previous talk, what is the problem, or step one. And you're welcome to go and listen to that previous recording to go in, into that. But in effect, we are powerless. And then what is the solution? I have done a talk on that, and you're welcome to listen to that. So today what we're going to do is now we know what our problem is, and we know what our solution is. So what's the very next thing that we'll do once we know what our solution is? Because step three, if we did it in a pictorial fashion, you would have an inverted triangle. And up, up to the left of you, let's say, there is, there is the problem. That's, that's where one place is in the road. And then on the right side up, if you look at this triangle, and you can go on that path, and that path is the solution, which is a power greater than yourself. So step three is making a decision to go towards problem or to go towards solution. And you get an option. You can take so power or you can take solution. There are, there's no door number three. There's just two options. You now have a decision to make. When we walk in the doors of OA, we don't have a decision to make. We can't say we walk in the door and start taking step three because yet we don't know what our problem is and we don't know what our solution is. So there's no decision to make. If you have one option, that's not a decision. There isn't any. But at three, we understand our problem. And we understand our solution, not in the head, but in the heart. Now we must decide which of those two options do you want to take. You get to make a decision. And step three starts with made a decision. So that decision is going towards the solution. Now, it doesn't mean that any and everybody at this point will make that decision towards the solution. You may want to go ahead and make the solution towards the problem. But at least you've made a decision. It's yours. Take the problem back. Go back there. It's your decision. But you can always come back to this fork in the road, understanding your problem, understanding your solution, and this time say, I blew it. I'm going towards solution. So it's not written in stone even if you go towards the problem. We wish you well. We hope misery for you, because that will more quickly bring, <laughs> bring you back towards that place in the road. Um, which sounds kind of weird to some people. Why would you wish that? Because in your arrogance, you will never come back until you realize you are completely powerless. Um, but anyway, now we are at that place. So when we now make the decision, we look in the big book and the part that ends the, ends the description of 
step two, as I was taught, there are three chapters in the book. There is one chapter that says, tells us what is the solution. The next chapter will talk about our insanity, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, which now will tell us about how insane we are. And then another, the next chapter, we agnostics, will tell us, you know, the next big thing is what is a power greater than us. So we kind of understand these two parts that we tend to want to fight. Once we've made the decision to go towards God, we, I mean, we kind of think what the solution is, I'm saying. Then we kind of look at the things that we want to balk on. I'm not insane, and I really don't need God. Other than that, I'm willing to take, I'm, I buy into step two. So they give us a chapter on each of those two clauses of step two. And so now that we understand that, and now we can, we're well able to make a decision, that would then start on page 58 until the last two lines of page 63. So 58 to 63, there are six pages, but in this it will, it will tell us about step three. When we, when we go to the story, there's a really, it's an unbelievable story, and every time I read it, my heart just jumps in joy and in awe of the moment in time when this, this, the parts, rarely have we seen a person fail on 58, through A, B, and C on page 60, those two and a half pages. And it's important to maybe look in a historical context what that, how that came to be. As the very next line after that, it says, being convinced we were at step three. So then it's going to go and then really delve in completely in step three. So just to let me take a little time on that because it's, so, it's such a powerful story. Well, what was the happening in the moment in time when, when we got to the, these two and a half pages? Well, in essence, Bill had gotten to what today we call a writer's block. They didn't use that term back in, in the fall of 1938, but that's where he was. He had written the first four chapters. Bill Wilson, the co-founder of AA, had written the first draft. They had been sent out to the group in New York, which is where Bill was. They had been sent to Akron, and Cleveland had a very small group, and that was really, in effect, where the second group was, which was where Dr. Bob was, the other co-founder. And, and the members had been reading this. There were 100 meters, med members in all, and they were looking it over and uh, saying what they thought. And... Um, as we know, with any group of 100 of us, there would be a, a little controversy. So I just want to take you to a couple stories and the, the stories of what some of the things that Bill wrote, most all of these articles he ever wrote for the Grapevine, which is the monthly magazine for AA, are put in a book called The Language of the Heart. So there is, a, there is an article written, a, fra a Fragment of History, Origin of the Twelve Steps, and that's July 1953. Um, and what he says about what was happening in, in Akron and, and New York at the time, um, he says, this is the evening now in which he sat down and was going to write the 12 steps. It's the evening in which the 12 steps were first put into, onto paper. And I do want to tell you, up until that point, there were no 12 steps. They um, had six tenets or steps, if you want to call them, from the Oxford group. And that was a spiritual group that they had joined, both groups, and which was giving them what, uh, they gave the original what would be how to get the solution. And they had six tenets. And so what these six tenets were, in effect, we one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Two, we got honest with ourselves. Three, we got honest with another person in competence. Four, we made amends for harms done others. 
and five, we work with other alcoholics without demand for procedure money, and six, we pray to God to help us to do these things as best we could. So we had these six tenets or steps is what they had. They didn't have the 12 steps. They didn't exist yet. Yes, they'd been in existence for almost, I mean, Bill, he got sober in December of 34. And now we're in the fall of 38, so almost four years later. But this is what they had used in those first four years. The second thing they used, in addition to these six tenets, they had what were called four absolutes, and that came from the Oxford group. And the absolutes were honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love. And these were the four, in effect, principles they had to go by. So that's what now Bill is ready now to sit down on that evening night and write the 12 steps. So in his head, he has the six tenets, and he has the four absolutes. And just a sidebar, I'd like to say, the four absolutes are on Dr. Bob's gravestone if you go to Akron. So it was a big deal. It got on his, it got on his, his that's what got there. It has his, his name and his date of birth and death. And the only thing other than that is the four absolutes, which are carved into, into granite or marble, whatever the tombstone is made of. So here he is, and he is now ready to write the 12 steps. And he has already written the first four chapters. And it says in here that as he thinks about what is he going to write down on paper, he is, he's saying that you know these people have looked over these first four chapters. And um, he says here in the story, we quickly found that everybody wanted to be an author. The hassles as to what should go into our new book was terrific. For example, some wanted a purely psychological book, which would draw in alcoholics without scaring them. We could tell them about the God business afterward. A few, led by her wonderful southern friend Fritz M., wanted a fairly religious book, infused with some of the dogma we had picked up from the churches and missions which had tried to help us. The louder these arguments, the more I felt in the middle. It appeared that I wasn't going to be the author at all. I was only going to be an umpire who would decide the contents of the book. This didn't mean, though, that we, there wasn't terrific enthusiasm for the undertaking. Every one of us was widely excited at the possibility of getting our message before all those countless alcoholics who still didn't know. So there he was. Now, he was the one that was trying to stop all the arguments because the 100, mostly in New York, he, the story is, mostly in New York was more fighting. They were fighting up a storm. They were telling Bill, I want this or I want that. And he is just trying to calm the troops down because they're arguing among themselves about these two positions. The ones that wanted it all to be psychological, you know, thoughts, thoughts. And then over here, the ones that were called the religious group that just really wanted to emphasize God. And somehow he had to orchestrate some kind of, you know, tension of the opposites. He had to live in the tension of these opposites and try to find these two groups that co could coexist and write a book that reflected both of these two camps that AA was in as far as what should be in the book. So it wasn't a calm, peaceful surrounding around him. But anyway, he's now it's an evening. He sits down with an old yellow tablet and a pencil. And he sits on his bed, and he begins to write something on paper knowing in his mind that he has to be more, to, to break down these six tenets into little smaller chunks of truth because he didn't want any wiggle room in the six. He just kind of knew intuitively that he needed to expand it beyond six, just take the six, but like break them into smaller pieces. He didn't know how many pieces that would come back out to. We now know it was 12, but he didn't know that, and he wasn't counting. 
But he wanted to take those basic six ideas, those six tenets, those six, those six principles that they were trying to live by. They did not call them steps at that time. And somehow get it on paper so that it was clear, precise, no wiggle room, that anybody now could understand the word-of-mouth program that these original hundred had practiced without the 12 steps, but just using these six tenets. So, so then he goes ahead and he starts writing. And this now is another article by the grapevine called How the Twelve, Ste How the Twelve Steps Were Born, and it is in September of 1962. So um, anyway, just want to read two paragraphs here that ends this article. It says, finally I started to write. I set out to draft more than six steps. How many more I did not know. I relaxed and asked for guidance. With a speed that was astonishing, considering my jaggled emotions, I completed the first draft. It took perhaps half an hour. The words kept right on coming. When I reached the start stopping point, I numbered the new steps. They added up to 12. Somehow this number seemed significant. Without any special rhyme or reason, I connected them with the 12 apostles. Feeling greatly relieved now, I commenced to reread the draft. So... If you, if you think about it, if you were to take a pencil and a pad of paper and you were going to start writing some thoughts you had in your mind longhand, and in a half hour, in a half hour, he had written page 58 through the middle of 60. Now, I don't know about you, but if I write longhand and I start writing down longhand, it could, it could take me well as a half hour to write that longhand, even if I already knew clearly what I was writing and was with, without any question, already had it completely formalized in my mind, it would take me a half hour to write two and a half type pages. I don't know how many pages that is written, but it's more than two and a half. So what we had, in effect, was Bill took the pencil and put it to paper, and God went through that that hand and that pencil, and down on paper came the 12 steps. That without much thought, completely organized by his own words, jaggled emotions, thinking about the fighting going on around him as the umpire, and not really knowing exactly what he was going to put down, other than he was going to expand upon these six statements, he unbelievably puts down just that. He puts on, he puts on paper now, what we will now go by. I mean, this is fantastic in my mind. That that had to be directly, directly written by God. How could it not be? I couldn't pull that off. I don't know anybody that could pull that off. Only God could pull that off. So unbelievable the 12 steps get put on paper. And now he's, but let's, let's see what happens. Immediately what happens to Bill? Arrogance, conceit, immediately fills him. He looks down and he realizes he's got something really good. Oh, my God, look how good it was what he wrote. He's thinking pretty good. It's good. So now let's then find out exactly what follows. Who was the very first person that heard these steps after Bill wrote them? The very – Lois wasn't there. His wife wasn't there. He was by himself home. So he is by himself, and now he is so – he's excited. He's pumped up. He has written something, he thinks. And so he, he – as he's rereading re that draft, guess what happens? There's a knock at the door. And here is now the next paragraph. At this moment, a couple of late callers arrive. One of them was my boon companion of those days, Howard A. With him was a newcomer, bar dry barely three months. 
I was greatly pleased with what I had written, and I read them the new version of the program, now the 12 Steps. Here's the reaction. Howard and his friend reacted violently. Why 12 Steps, they demanded. And then, you've got too much God in these steps. You are, you'll scare people away. And what do you mean by getting those drunks down on their knees when they ask to have all their shortcomings removed? And I just want to edit that with step seven, which I, that part on the knees got taken out by the people. They didn't want it in there. Next, and who wants to, all those shortcomings removed anyway? Anyhow, as he saw my uneasiness, Howard added, well, some of the stuff does sound pretty good after all. But, Bill, you've got to tone it down. It's too stiff. The average alcohol just won't buy it the way it stands. I sprang to the defense of the new creation, every single word of it. A terrific discussion developed, which cooled only when Lois turned up a couple of hours later. Why don't you forget about it for a while, she said, and have a cup of coffee. This we did. So the day the steps were written, it, <laughs> the day the steps were written, they were not embraced by the fellowship. It was, he, he, imagine you, you have been going to OA for several years, you show up at a meeting, they say, guess what? Guess what? Uh, it's not going to be 24 steps. And you're like, what a man, what do you mean, 24? 12 was fine. Why are you doubling it? What is, what is wrong with you? What are you doing? It's worked for us. I'm, 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 I'm abstinent. Don't change it. It's working. That was the reaction Bill got. So it had to go through its own struggles. And then there was some changes made. Uh, fundamentally, they stayed the same, but there were some things, a few things were taken out and or changed, a couple words, but it did come back. I mean, basically, it was that. So this is a profound piece of history, and I just stuck it in here just to at least know that, um, and you can read more of that and uh, those articles and some others that will talk about it. So, okay, so let's now go on to step three. That was a little sidebar here, but it was good to know our history. Okay, if we go to page 60, it says, being convinced we were at step three which is that we decided to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. What, just, do it, just what do we mean by that? Okay, so, so now you're at that crossroad, and as you look to one side is the problem, and you can make the decision to go towards problem, that is, eat compulsively again. Or you can decide to go towards solution, which that is God now is going to be, going to be running the show. So we have to make the decision, and we're going to go towards solution. But what does it mean? So what Bill does every time in this book, he does this without fail. Anytime he has a major idea, a hugely tremendous important idea, he will always follow it up with an example. He will tell you, then he'll give you the example. And then he'll probably summarize and remind you again of what the idea is. You'll see it in step one. He gives you what is the problem. Dr. Silkworth and Dr.'s opinion. Then he gives you the example, Bill's story. So he tells you through his own life what exactly Dr. Silkworth meant by physical algae, or craving, and mental obsession. In step two, it's no different. If you go to page 25, he will tell you what the solution is. But then he immediately, if you flip the page onto 26, he'll give you the example. And it's a man named Roland Hazard who is visiting Dr. Carl Jung. And there, in those two pages, you will be told exactly again what the solution is. So here we come to step three. No different. He's now just told us what step three is. He's just told us. 
and that we must decide to turn our will or life over to the care of God as we understood him. That's what it is, but now he's going to give us the example. He's going to tell us exactly what that means. So that means we better pay attention, because if we didn't get it in the words of what the problem is or the solution is or what it means to make this decision, now we'll be given an example, and in the example, hopefully then we'll understand it. So let's then, so we now know that step three is making the decision to go towards solution, which is God as we understand God. Okay, what does it mean to make that decision? So the next paragraph on page 60 starts off, the first requirement is, now what does that mean, the first requirement? That means there's going to be at least a second one. If it's only one requirement, he would say the requirement. He says the first requirement, meaning there is another requirement somewhere be on the lookout. You've got at least a second and maybe more requirements. But I'm going to tell you about that first one. So, okay, this is not all of what we'll need to know. We will find out what the second requirement is. But now we're going to look at just the first requirement. Because if we want to leapfrog over to the second requirement and don't understand the first requirement, then we will not have understood step three. So we have to first, he breaks it down into two requirements. And now we're going to understand that first requirement. The first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. So we have to understand that, that it's a mess when we try to run the show. We have to understand what does it mean that it is a mess. Our first requirement is to understand something beyond what we've known up to now. Up to now, we've talked about our mess with food. It's a complete mess how we're eating. Uh, I'm a glutton. That's who I am. I'm a compulsive overeater. That's seven syllables. I can say a glutton. That's two syllables. They mean the same thing. So for me, I'm a glutton, and it's a mess. My food is a mess. It is a mess. It is a mess. I am completely powerless around it. I need some help. I need to find some way to have something greater than me to take care of me because my food is a mess. But now... Guess what he's going to say? He's now going to enter, which is very important. Now he's going to talk about, no, it's not just your food, dear. Your whole life is a mess. Everything about you is a mess. You thought it was just food, but guess what? It's more than your food. He's going to expand upon what is the mess, what am I powerless over. My example now is going to let me know that my life is a mess. Not my food is a mess. I've already accepted that my food's a mess. I am now abstinent. I'm all right doing that. I know that God's going to take care of me. But I've really been focusing now on the first two steps because he's going to let us kind of, kind of accept that, that it's kind of my food's a mess. I'm going to need to have God run the show because my food's a mess. Now he's going to tell me that it's more than my food is a mess. My whole life is a mess. My whole life is a mess because it's based on self-will. Eating compulsively is self-will run riot. But lo and behold, it wasn't limited to just my food. My whole life was self-will. So I need to know how that, my whole life, is a mess. This is a big hunk of truth. Because there are people that come into program who think, okay, I have a problem with food, but everything else is just fine. I'm sure you might have said it. 
I'm sure if you've been attending OA, you have heard it said many times by people walking the door. My only problem is food. Everything else seems to be going okay. I always chuckle to myself, just chuckle. Oh, in a few months you might be acknowledging that you have more than the problem with the food. You might find all kinds of problems. Uh, so at this point we're going to look at really who we are in essence, the core of us, down to the root, the roots, not just the part that the public sees, but we're going to look at the root. And the root means below the surface. It is what is not seen by others. It is only that which we may know or may not know. But it's the root. It's below the surface, underground. It is not visibly shown to others. And we'll find the root cause of this eating compulsively. So we're going to have to acknowledge something very important, how utterly <laughs> messed up we are beyond just food. So now he gives us the example. And the famous example of the actor. So we have an actor. We are the actor. We are the actor. If we think uh, we're not, we are an actor. Eating compulsively and trying to live a life on self-will means we are an actor. Okay, so we are, let's look and see if this applies to us. So we're this actor. And, you know, um, here we are, self-will and right. We want everything to turn out the way we think they should turn out. Because, you know, we're pretty good people, right? And, uh, yes, it's a life uh, run on self-will. But, you know, we'll almost always be in collision with others even if our motives are good. He's not going to give us this pathetic example of us with horrific motives of evil and doom for the, the planet Earth. We're, he's going to give us an example of somebody with good motives. Okay, so here we are with good motives. And we are, we're the actor. And we have, we've come into the first rehearsal, in effect. And we come walking in, we're a little actor. Now the reality, I was this two-bit actor. I had a couple lines and that's it on the stage. That's all I had. That was my life. I was born. I'm a garden variety human being. And as a garden variety, <laughs> garden variety human being, I come in, I come in for that play, and I've got a couple lines. And then when it's all over, then it's time for me to die, and my soul goes wherever it goes. But I've got these little lines I've got to say, because I'm a garden variety uh, human being. But I've come in, and since I have a life run on self-will, I want to be the star actor. I want my name up on the marquee. I want flashing neon lights around my lines. Because I want what I want. I am self-will run riot. I've got good motives. I think I have some things that can be of help to society. Yeah, I, I think I do. So um, I want my name on the marquee. And, uh, but I come in right away and realize that I got two bit, these two lines. That's all I'm going to say for my lifetime. So what do I do if I have a life self-will? Well, I come in and I decide I'm not going to be the actor. I reject the role that God has given me, and I decide that I'm going to be the director of the play. So I take the script out of the director's hand, and I start giving directions to everybody in the room all the parts they're going to play and what they're going to say and how they're going to say it, what their costumes are going to be, and what the lighting is and how the sound sets, whatever. Not that I have any training in it. That's irrelevant. I'm going to run the show. So suddenly I have decided, the director, the director happens to be God, but that's irrelevant. I've taken everything and I'm now going to control the whole, you know, the whole, uh, this whole time together. 
it's rehearsal. You know, I think it's rehearsal. Actually, it's life itself. So I'm in there, and I'm trying to run the show. I have good motives. And, and so everything's going to be trying to be arranged as I decide. And so I come from two basic approaches. I can use two basic approaches. I preferred one, but I can try the other. And usually most, some of us flip-flop from bit, bit one to the other. So if we have a continuum, and one end of the continuum, this is who we are. We come in and we see that this thing, you know, we want to run the show. We want to be the director. We want our name on the marquee for getting this whole thing to get together. So, um, so what it is, I'm the, I'm the virtuous one. I have found many of us that play the virtuous one. I say play. We're not virtuous. We play being virtuous. There's a difference. The martyr Mary with the big red flag outside her house. She's a martyr Mary. She is the best mother on planet Earth. Woo, flies that flag around. Woo, look at her, look at her. She, she is the martyr. She is good. She's playing the part. She isn't the part. She wouldn't have a flag out front flying it if it was just her doing it. So here's who she is. It'd be him too. You are kind. You are considerate. You're patient, generous even modest and self-sacrificing. Wow, what a person. That's who you are. I mean, doesn't that sound pretty good? You've got good motives, you know? You'll even get accolades from a few people that will fall from the part that you're doing. You know I mean, you know, you're doing all of this, and you're, you're so kind and generous. You're so loving. You are so loving to the world. People will point out you're the best mother out there. You're the best employee out there. Oh, my God. I mean, I don't know how you do it, they'll say. And you'll go, oh, I, I don't know. It's just, it's, 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 well, you might even say it's God. You're talking in your church. But underneath, you have your dirty little secret, don't you? You're a glutton. You can't stop. You know it. Or maybe you go ahead and hide the evidence. You go ahead and eat, and then you find some way to get rid of the weight. So nobody knows. But you've got your dirty little secret. So for all of your kindness and your generosity and your modest and self-sacrificing facade, underneath, below the ground, there are no roots to support the play you're trying to present. Because underneath, and you know it when you're alone, you're like a wild animal when you eat sometimes, stuffing it in so fast. Animal in the jungle can't eat it faster than you can when you stuff it in your mouth. You can play that good old facade, that persona, but you know what? It's all a game. You know it, and God knows it. On the other hand, on the other hand, you may play the other on the continuum. We have the kind, gentle person, and then we have the other half. And on the other side, you may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. You don't even bother to play sweet little goody two-shoe. You are going to dominate, control, dictate, every decision. And you know it has to be that way because you know best. And you're going to do it and you're going to push to the limits until you get what you want because you know you've got to have it. You come off that way. And you know it's best because you know what's best. But generally we flip-flop from one to the other. So we can be kind and generous at work, we can mean and egotistical home, or we can flip into the church and be another way. It doesn't really matter, but we can flip. We can actually have multitude of facades, but underneath that mean, egotistical one, because you don't want anybody to ever get close to you. You don't want any warm, fuzzy stuff, because you have your dirty little secret, too. You're also a glutton. 
or you're eating it and you're, you know, getting rid of it. But you know that about yourself, too. You don't want anybody to know who you really are, but the facade goes on. So here you are. You come into your little dress rehearsal. You're just going to get what the two lines are, and you throw that away and say, no, I'm going to be the director, and I'm going to get this play to turn out the way I want. And you take this one extreme in which you are Miss, Miss Goody Two-Shoes, and over here you're going to take the other extreme. You're just going to go for the throat if it needs to be, but you're going to get what you want. And you play these two things back and forth. And when we get really, really honest with ourselves, is that not been our story? Is it true that our problems only begin with the food? They were the first thing we looked at, but that is not exclusively why we're here in program. What we have is a defective personality. Something is wrong, and the, the, what's similar between these two extremes on the continuum is self-will run riot. One is to present what we think will get what we want by being so sweet and goody. The other doesn't bother because we don't need to, and we do it that way. And in our gut, we know that one day we'll be found out. And so we play these two things, and there has been times when you've been mean, self-centered, egotistical. And there have been times in your life when you've been very kind, gracious, modest, and self-sacrificing. Most of us have had both. But it was always in order to get what we thought we had to have. That's the commonality. Self-will run right. So the first requirement is that we must be convinced any life run in this matter in which we have to be the director of a show when, in which we were never supposed to be the director will cause something in which we'll be in, in collusion or, uh, I'm sorry, uh, where we'll, we'll crash into others, you know, that we, it won't work at some point. And what happens? Anytime that happens, we try harder. We just try harder to play the same game. We don't give up the game. We try harder playing the game. And, but it still doesn't work. And this keeps going on. And it's a vicious circle, getting worse and worse and worse, just like that vicious circle step one. But it's called life itself. And so in this program, there are two deaths. This is very important. There are two deaths. There is the death of food. The food as we've known it has to die. But the second is there has to be a death of self. Death of food and then death of self. self. So it's one thing to finally let the food go and, eat and be abstinent and eat according to what God wishes us to do. But the second, because the only way we'll have permanent abstinence is to be recovered. We must allow ourselves to die. We must allow the death of self, self-will. If we do not allow its death, then we will never stay out of the food permanently. For the, that which causes to go towards food, the personality that is fatally flawed, will return us back to the food. Or maybe not there, then we'll go to a new addiction. But we'll always remain in the cycle of moving to something outside of ourselves to give us some type of comfort and ease when we're not feeling comfortable and at ease. Because we're not going to feel comfortable and ease when we live a life with a persona, a mask, a facade directed towards others and are not genuinely who God wants us to be. So the death of self. But the very key to this, and this is where people get so often tripped up in programs, 
We cannot get rid of self-will with self-will. Let me say it again because people hear it and they go, yeah, I think I get it. No, you don't get it. We cannot get rid of self-will with self-will. So if we try to get rid of self-will, because we now see that it doesn't work, we cannot get rid of it with self-will. We will not get, use that to kill that because it will never allow itself to be killed. We cannot get rid of our self-will with our self-will. All your thoughts, your actions, anything you come up with will not succeed because every step has to be taken in the heart and not in the head. In the head is self-will, but in the heart is God. So we have to allow the self-will to go away. We may not understand how, but we are willing to let it die, but not try to make it die. And we have all been about self-will run riot. Because when we read this whole story, and it goes on and it talks about the actor, and ultimately he is self-centered, egocentric, we read all of that, and we see, and he asks all these questions, then what we understand, it says on page 62, selfishness, self-centeredness. That, we think, is the root of our troubles. You see, the commonality is that we are selfish. We want what we want when we want it. And it doesn't matter what facade or costume we put on in the play. It's still underneath that costume. When we take it off, it's still selfishness. Selfishness. It is the root of the trouble. And we have to allow it to die. But we can't try to make it die because that which we're trying to make it die with is what makes it alive. We cannot get rid of that which makes it be. It can never be a frontal attack. The only solution for selfishness, self-will to be at the center of our lives instead of God's will to be at the center of our lives is to do what the steps tell us to do, exactly what they tell us to do. And naturally, as a consequence of working the steps properly, exactly following the directions of the book, a piece of self-will will, will break off. And another piece will break off. And the next step, another one, breaks off. And as we make this decision with three that we're going to have God run the life, that's a piece of that self-will breaking off. And when we do an inventory, another piece breaks off. And another piece breaks off in five when we talk to somebody. When we note the character defects we've talked about and written about and talked about in four and five, another piece breaks off. And seven, another age piece, another piece breaks off. We don't have to get rid of our self-will. In fact, we can't get rid of our self-will. If we just follow directions and let God work through us, it happens automatically. Your self-will will come down and realize it, it, will just, it will go away on its own. You don't have to worry about this one. Just do what the book tells you to do, and it just happens on its own. You don't, trust me on this. I'm telling you, it happens automatically. It happened for me. It's happened for others. To obtain this conscious contact with God, which is what we're doing when we do make this decision, and then we go all the way through nine, we're now, we've now obtained it. We now have a basis of our life, which isn't self-will, but it happened by us doing what the book says to do. I remember at one point, I don't even know when it was, I didn't note any dates, but I remember it just popped in my mind, which that means it's not me because when stuff pops into my mind and I had no thought to pop in my mind, that usually means God's talking to me. And all of a sudden it occurred to me, out of the blue, that I didn't feel any shame. I did not feel shame. 
And I said, wait a minute, how did that happen? I could not remember a day of my life without feeling shame. Because below the surface of all this stuff, I felt shame. Regardless of the facade, the, the mask I put on to present to the world, underneath that mask, I felt shame. I didn't think that I had made a mistake. I thought I was a mistake. I didn't think I'd done something wrong. I thought I was fundamentally flawed and wrong as a human being. Underneath it all, I felt I was drowning in shame. And yet on this particular day, I realized I didn't feel shame. It was gone. I don't know how it was gone. I never tried to have it removed. I never thought about it until the day it didn't exist. And I can tell you now, many, many years later, more than 20 years later, I don't feel shame. That doesn't mean I get arrogant. It doesn't mean I feel I'm the armpit of society. It just means I'm just a garden variety human being that does the best I can. But I'm not, I don't feel shame about it. Somehow, automatically, without me trying, it was removed somehow in doing these steps. So if it happens for me, I know it will happen for you. So if we look at the book, if we look at this, um, so we basically say on the next paragraph, our troubles we think are basically our own making. Yes, all of the troubles arise out of ourselves. And we are self we're in riot. We don't think so, but we are. And we must be rid of the selfishness. We must or it kills us. Explanation point. Now, the next thing we hear the word God. Oh, you know, in these, all these pages, we didn't really hear God mentioned. Oh, that's interesting. Why did we not mention God? Hmm. We start talking about page 60, step 3, and we had God there. We mentioned it the very first sentence. We have to turn our world or life order that God as we understood him. And then we went on for another almost uh, close to two pages, uh, and we didn't mention God. That's because we were talking about ourselves, so God wasn't a part of it. But it says God makes this possible. So God now is entered in the, in the example. This is vitally important. Why is God mentioned here? Well, there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of ourselves without God's aid. I mean, that's it. Oh, huh. We have to have God's help. Oh, I see God's help. Ah, guess what's happening? We're going to now learn what the second requirement is. Here it is. Next paragraph tells us what the second requirement is. This is the how and why of it. First requirement. First of all, we had to quit. I mean, I said, first of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. So the first requirement says here. The first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. Page 60. On 62, it says, first of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Okay, that's the first requirement. We have to stop doing what we're doing. The second requirement, here's the second requirement. Next, we decided that hereafter in the drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal, we are his agents. He is the father, and we are his children. First requirement is to quit playing God, to be convinced that we can't do that, and to quit playing God. The second requirement is to now embrace, embrace step three. Now we are willing to say that now that God, God, will be the one that will run the show. First, is, first we realize that us running the show doesn't work. Second requirement is that God will be the director. We're not the director. God is. We come now, we look around, we see the mess we've made. We go over and say, sorry, you really were the director. We hand everything back to God. And we stop trying to arrange the lights and the sounds and the costumes and the places and the lines. 
When we go over and we stand on that spot on that stage, and when it's our cue, we say our two lines. And when we end our life on planet Earth, we can smile and God can smile with us because we set our two lines on cue. We've decided that that's what we're now going to do. In the drama of life, we're going to say our lines on cue when God gives them to us, and we'll say them as God and how God wants us to say them. That's the decision we've made. We decided that a life run of self-will will not work, the first requirement. And the second requirement is now we're going to let God run the show. We understand the problem, and we understand the solution about more than food now. We understood what the problem was about food. We understood the solution, and, and it was kind of a theory. You know, we kind of, okay, yes. Uh, motives, attitudes, which were once, you know, the guiding force of our lives will be cast aside, and a completely different set of ones will guide us. Yes, we understand that's the solution overall. Very true. And if you go and read Dr. Jung's work, you can do it in 25 and 27, it says, on page 27, it says, here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. To me, these occurrences are phenomenal. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men, are suddenly cast to one side, and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. That's kind of the overall what's going to happen. Three tells us now exactly what that means. You are the actor, and that, that you trying to run the show is now stopped. You're going to go over, get ready for your cue, to say whatever you're supposed to say and how you're supposed to say it, when you're supposed to, according to what God tells you to do, and no longer, no longer, even though you'll feel vulnerable and exposed by taking that costume off and just doing what God wants you to do, that's the decision you've now made. And you're willing to do that. You don't know what quite, quite what's going to follow. And for already, you're going to find out all the mistakes you made when you were holding that script and trying to tell everybody what to do. You're going to do an inventory about all that stuff that you messed up on. You're going to talk to somebody about it, and you're going to know what those defects were when you tried to run that show. Being kind, nice, goody-two-shoe, or being mean, egotistical, and, and completely outwardly selfish that everybody thought. You'll go and do that work. You'll do the things that need to do to be clean this up so that you can obtain this relationship with God. But in three, you must have two requirements. You first realize that your life run on self-will is an utter failure more than food. You have to be willing to allow the death of self. And the second, the second, is now you go ahead and take directions for something greater than you and try to follow those directions to the best of your ability. So you now are you're allowing the director to be the director who was supposed to be the director all along. And those are the two requirements that you need, according to this big book, to follow. Well, once we've done that, something beautiful and great happens. And what happens is we're now on the top of 63, and we're now going to talk about the promises of step three. Promises of step three. Promises mean promise. It's guaranteed. It's an obvious. It's a result. It's going to happen. It's not a maybe. I wonder if this will happen if I do this step. The beautiful thing in the book, now, I mean, first we find out what the problem is. We find out what the solution is. Now we're actually working to get the solution. How do we get the solution? We first have to make a decision, like we said here. Well, if we make this decision, then we're going to have certain guaranteed results. We're going to have promises. So what does this tell us? If we work the step appropriately, we will see if the next paragraph, every single component in that paragraph is true in our life now that we've made this decision. If it is true 
we have worked step three. If it is not true, we have not worked step three, or maybe even some work on step one and two. For us to know, how beautiful is it that now, as we come to the near the end of taking step three, that we have exactly given to us exactly what will happen, ha have happened to us if we have taken the step appropriately. We are now given promises if we take it appropriately, this is what is guaranteed will now be in our lives. So we now know if we've taken a step three. Same if you go and you take step four on page 70, there are those promises. If you take step five, there on page 75, there are those promises. Each time we are told exactly what will happen at this moment if we've done it right. So we now know if we've done it right. Wow, it's like taking a test at school and then reading it afterwards, oh, I did take the test right because now they told me all the answers. Wow, I know I took it right. I passed the test. Here it is right here. Here are the promises of step three. So what I do with my sponsorees, at this point, you know, we've been working, so we, take, we go to the promises, and I ask her to, or him, to read, you know, each promise in this paragraph and ask, really, is it true or not? And if the answer is true and everything is yes, then okay, we'll do now the step three prayer. If not, there's some more work that needs to be done, and you know exactly what it is because that's one promise, and all the other promises are true, but that one isn't. That's the weak chain, that weak link on that chain. It'll break. Go back and do some more work on that issue. So let's look at the step three promises. Doing just this and coming to realize that now we're not going to be, uh, try to be the director of a play. We're going to be a two-bit actor, and we're fine with it. When we took, took, sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. Yes, remarkable things followed. We're now not going to live life like, like we've lived it. We've begun the process of allowing the death of self to occur. We had a new employer. Again, we're not the director of the play. We're the actor. So now we've taken our proper role in life. We had a new employer. We were not the employer of the business. We are the employee. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. So at this point, we've acknowledged now the employer, the, and earlier they called it the director, means the same thing. We're going to be, remain close to this, this energy greater than us. We're going to do our work as best as we can. If we go ahead and make that commitment to stay close to that energy and perform the work as given to us, directed by that energy, that's what our life is now going to be based on. Established in such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. Of course, because now not, it's not self-will and riot, it's God's will. So now we're not going to be pl putting plans and designs in place. We're just going to try to stay close to God, figure out what we, as best we can, will be. It'll be poor at the beginning because we'll kind of misunderstand it. And that's why we definitely need to talk to people to make sure we're following the directions of God because we're just starting this, this journey this way. But we're going to be less interested in ourselves. More and more we become interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. Oh, it's not about life contributing to us. It's about us contributing to life. As we felt new power flow in, definitely new power flow in because now God's running the show, not us. So it's not our little bitty power. It's God coming through us, so we feel it. We enjoy peace of mind. Oh, the burden of life, all these burdens we put on ourselves, we can enjoy life because now we're doing just our peace. That's all we're doing, but we're doing that, and that gives us peace of mind. We discovered we could face life successfully. Wow. We don't have to put on a facade and create an image in order to get what we want. We can face life successfully. As we became convinced of his presence, ah, we begin to feel God's presence. We begin to feel it now. We begin. Again, these are begins. 
We began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, the hereafter. Yes, less fear. Because you see, it's not based on our little plans and designs, which is a pretty fearful, because in the end we know we're not that good as we think we are, and we were reborn. So there's a lot of things that are beginning here. It doesn't mean you've arrived, but all of these are tremendous things. And to think just by taking step three already, all of this is promised, guaranteed, a definite in your life already. You're beginning to start to feel close to God. You're beginning to follow the directions as best you can. You're going to feel some power. You're going to feel some near. You're going to begin to feel God's presence. You're going to begin to feel po- not this power, but even that you can enjoy life. You can have peace of mind around it. You can feel some success, but not based on your efforts, but on something greater that you're carrying out. You are in effect reborn by doing that. You have gone to a different place. And some people say, oh, the action begins on step four. No, if you take step three like the big book tells you, trust me, this is a big deal. This isn't just a little stuff. You really have made a change. You have changed in your attitude and changing in your attitude, which you have to do first because the action will follow. If you have poor thoughts, the action will follow. But you have made these thoughts. You've cleaned them up. You've now known really where the power comes from, and you're willing to do it. Now you have now, because these are all have happened in your life, you're now going to publicly manifest to those around you in the program that you have taken step three. You now know all these promises are true, and so now you're going to offer prayer to God. Based on the way it was done by the original hundred, and if you remember the piece I read much earlier about humbly on our knees, which was taken out of the step, it didn't mean that people didn't take the prayers on their knees. It's just it was taken out of the steps because some thought that was too religious and they wanted to make it a more spiritual focus, and they felt it may apply more to, you know, basically... Christianity, where they got on their knees. I mean, you know, Orthodox Jews will rock on their feet, one foot to another. Um, if it's Muslim, you get down and you, and you bow to, on the ground and kiss the floor. And this adoration, uh, knowledging publicly <coughs> your adoration of something greater than you. So it was too confined to one gesture that was more Christian than others, and it was taken out of the steps. But that did not mean the act of humility before one's God was to be removed. It just simply they said they weren't going to restrict whatever gesture they made to one, one that usually refers to one particular religion. And so it was taken out. But it's still the humble recognition and a public display of what one has done is clearly there. So I simply speak with my sponsorees and I say, this is the way the original 100 did it, so you're going to do it too, so let's do that. So they will do it on their knees unless... If, I, if they're an Orthodox Jew, why don't you do it with a rocking? If you're Muslim, because I sponsored Muslims, I sponsored Jews, I sponsored Christians, I sponsored Buddhists, I just haven't sponsored Hindus. Whatever gesture may be, but make a public d- demonstration of your humility to that which you're praying to, and then say these words, or you can modify them slightly as long as it gets the ideas that you're saying, and say it in front of your group. So th- my sponsorees do do that, and they do then come and say they want to now take complete taking step three, and they will, most of them get on their knees, and then we'll say the prayer out loud in front of everybody in their group, acknowledging now that this now is the decision that has been made on a public level. And this prayer is very powerful, because now God offer myself to thee, to build with me and do with me as thou will. So no longer am I going to try to be a director of a show. Uh, relieve me of the bondage itself. I may better do that well. I didn't know what bondage itself meant when I read this, but we're actually allowing ourselves as God does it, directs through us, to not be in charge, to just let that go, whatever the uh, attempts we use. Take away my difficulties, the victory of them may bear witness to those that would help with thy power, their love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. 
yes, you know, just the only thing is to let people see God work through us, even if they don't know what that is that they're seeing going through us. And it will be taken care of because we have God's power, God's love, and God's way of life. And just to do God's will. That's it. The last paragraph notes who you can do it in front of, but um, a great one can be felt at once by just doing exactly what this big book tells us to do. So with that, I will close my discussion of step three because that ends it in the book, and I will open it up for questions. Thanks. Ruth, we thank you so much for this enlightening presentation on step three this morning. Thank you also for sharing a bit of our AA history and uh, for your fascinating insights and your experience related to step three. We thank you for your time. And yes, now is the time that we open the floor for any questions that you might have. We have about 170 people on the line. Perhaps you have a question. Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Lori from New Jersey. I have a question. Hi, Lori. Hi. I hope my, yes. now my, my, after everything that you said, this is going to sound like the most ridiculous question of all, but I don't understand why compulsive overeating itself will run riot because I don't have control over it. You know, like I'm a slave to the food. So I don't know why itself will run run riot because I have no, I have no will when the disease, when I'm in the disease. You know what I'm saying? Right. It's like a boomerang. What you use to try to make yourself feel comfortable and at ease when you didn't feel comfortable and at ease, eventually it was a boomerang that came back and tore you into shreds. But your effort to do that with food was self-will run riot. And now you can't control the monster that you created. Does that make sense? Kind of. Um, you said it. You, said it you know, it's not just, it's, how could it even be a monster that I created? It's a monster that I never wanted. It's like, okay. I don't know. Maybe I'm looking at myself as a victim then of compulsive overeating. And it's rather more of a victim than choosing it. Because I don't think I would have ever chosen it. I would have rather chosen to eat like a normal person. Like I just don't get the self-will because I had no, I don't know, I had no will. I had no, well, when I'm thinking of will, I'm thinking of control. Correct. Yeah. The, the very, very first time I ate compulsively, I had no idea that's what I was doing. I did that. I started actually, my, my career started at 15 years old, only because I, my situation, I lived on a farm. There was no access. I would have done a lot earlier, but I didn't have access. I lived out on a farm, and I had to walk many, many miles into town to get something. There was nothing at home. And so anyway, I didn't start until I was 15. And I just overate. That's all. Took an extra few bites of the meal. That's all I did. That's how it began. So when I first began eating too much too often, Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the very earliest stages of the disease. But I was eating for some comfort and feeling at ease because I didn't feel comfortable and at ease in society. So the very first compulsive bites I took, 
I did not know until I got brutally honest with myself later on that it began at 15. Because at 15, I mean, I'll tell you what happened. I, at 15, I'm 5'4", and I'm 112, 113 pounds. Who would claim I had a problem with eating compulsively? I mean, I was fine. I was a normal weight, normal height. Um, and even by the time I graduated from high school, I was now at 5'6", 129 pounds. I mean, 139, 139 pounds. So you can see I was, I was picking up the weight. I mean, I had gone and gained, what, 26, 27, 28 pounds then? So I was off and running, but I never would call myself a compulsive eater, but I had already had three years under my belt. Mm-hmm. See, I didn't have weight to tell me, but I had already done the behavior. I was already doing it. So when I get honest with myself, it wasn't that one day – Suddenly, me eating completely normal, and one day I'm eating like a wild animal. I did not do that. Most all of us gradually a little more and a little more and a little more until suddenly one day we go, I, there's this monster. How did it happen? Well, we I got it now. Okay. Okay? Yep, it clicked. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you, Lori, for the question. And next... This is Susan. Susan, your turn. Thanks so much, Leah and Ruth. Ruth, I wanted to come back to the promises. I have a question about them. As you read, it says on page 63, as we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, and then it goes on to say uh, dot, 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 and we began to lose our fear. My experience has been that if this new power was flowing in so beautifully, why did I need to do the rest of the steps? I needed to go on to start to feel the power, to get rid of some of the blockages, and I wasn't experiencing a whole lot of peace of mind or a reduction in my fears until I went on. I didn't even feel it in my fourth step. I started feeling it as I'm turning over my fifth step. So um, I just wanted to hear you speak more to that. Thanks. Okay. The word here is here, we began. We began, meaning you just began. We began to lose our fear. We began. It does not mean you're going to feel it in a, in a deep, profound way. It means the word began. Step three promises, it's very clear this is the beginning of, which will only increase as we do each of the subsequent steps. These are the beginning of it, right? We begin to do these things. We begin to feel a little. It doesn't mean we feel a lot. It doesn't mean we feel it often. It just means we begin. So if um, uh, I would give you an analogy. When I tried to learn to ride a bike, um, I don't know if anybody went through this. I tried to learn to ride a bike, and all I did was fall down. And I get up and I do a little and I fall down. And I got my skin, my knees, oh, really bad. I was trying to do it and it got gravel in it and blah, blah, and got scarred up. And anyway, I was trying to learn to ride a bike. And for a fleeing second, when I first tried to learn to ride a bike, it was just a fleeing second, down I went. For a fleeing second. But it was long enough for me to get on that bike and try it again. I began to learn to ride a bike. It only lasted literally, it must have been a second, maybe two seconds. I, oh, oh, down I went. But it was just enough for me to want to get on that bike and try to get it to last longer. And finally, after it seemed to me forever, I'm sure it wasn't, finally I get on the bike and I can ride that bike. So step three is like getting on that bike and it just lasted for just a few seconds at most. That's what it's saying. These promises are profound, but it does not say they're consistent. 
deep, profound experience of these things. It is the beginning of, because it is the first time you've made a decision to have not yourself run the lo your life, but God run your life. And you've made a decision. That's what you've done. That's, that's all you've done, but that's profound what you've done. So it is the beginning of a relationship with God, and this is, ex is writing in the words, expressing what happens as you begin to learn to ride your bike. Does that make sense? It, it does. Is it, is it okay if I ask a, a quick follow-up on the same topic based on what you're saying? Yeah. So when you're working with a sponsee, and let's say they're still pretty interested in themselves or and seeing what rather than what they can contribute to life or they still, you know, have whatever, whichever of the promises, because you said you go through each one with them. If you sense that they're making a beginning, then that's enough to move on. That's that's kind of what I'm getting at in my question. Yeah, Thanks so much. You know, as, you know, as we. Be, it's you know at the, we start to feel new power flow in. It's the very first time. First time the, the the bike you know doesn't fall over for for even two seconds. Okay, it's enough to propel us to keep moving on and to learn the task of riding a bike. So it's the beginning of the flowing of the power. In. It's the beginning to start to have a peace of mind. It's the beginning to enjoy something. So a person as they've been working says, you know, I don't know why, but you know, um, I don't know how it happened. But, you know, I've been yelling at my kid, and, and, I, and I didn't yell for about three minutes. I feel horrible. I, I didn't yell for three minutes. Well, before this, you couldn't stop yelling for, you, you couldn't even stop yourself for 10 seconds. So you begun to stop yelling at your child. That doesn't mean it's right. You're yelling at your child. But now you lasted three minutes, where before you couldn't last at all. You, you said that your child, any and every time you did something, you automatically spoke, and you could never control yourself at all. So it is seeing that something is somehow different. You must have had a power greater than yourself that got you to do that because you said you couldn't possibly do it just two, uh, three days ago. So you'll begin to see change because you've made the decision within you to do something different and just the decision means something begins to shift, but it does not mean it's consistent. It does not mean it's a, it's a deep, profound way of doing it. It just means you've begun a new process. You have begun to go on the, the road to the right, not the road to the left. And you've taken your first couple steps on that, on that path, but you've just taken a couple steps. And you can easily go off on side roads, in which you tend to do when you first take, make the decision to go towards God. Thanks so much for the clarification. I'm sorry, I interrupted. I apologize. No, that's okay. Thank you, Susan, for the question. Who's next? Hi, Pamela here. Sally. Go right ahead. Pamela, I believe, and then Sally. Yeah, thank you. Hi, I'm Pamela Food Addict. Um, I wanted to thank you so much, Ruth. That was just amazing. wanted to talk, uh, if you could talk a little bit about surrender and how you were saying that you can't surrender with self-will, but then, I mean, the action of actually getting on your knees obviously is, is a mind action. Um, when you're t taking a leap of faith, jumping into the water is, is surrendering. Um, making a prayer is surrendering. I just want to know if you could talk just a little more second about surrender. Mm -hmm. um, for me, surrender is more a state of mind. Uh, it comes from my heart, and I have thought differently than before that moment, and then I want to publicly acknowledge and manifest that surrender. 
uh, an action that is without the heart involved is a hollow action, isn't it? it it's, 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 it lacks substance. It's for show. It's not genuine. When you're in a meeting and somebody says something, and I mean they're just struggling, and they get out about seven words, and it, it, it is so difficult, but they get them out. And you know they have spoken deep from their heart, and, uh, and it touches you. Because a heart, when one speaks from the heart, it touches another's heart. But if it's an intellectual exercise, and they're, and they're saying the same thing, but it's, it, okay, well, it registers in your head that they did say it. When you feel that deep touching within you from what somebody says, it is coming from the heart. And you, when you speak from the heart, it's not to be a polished, elegant, all shiny presentation. It, it is somewhere deeper it comes from you. Um, when I've opened my mouth and said something that I didn't know was there and had never thought those things that came out of my mouth, I know I did not say them, for I did not think ever to say them. And if I do something that comes from a place that I had no ability to even know to do the behavior, it had never entered my mind, then I know it did not come from my thoughts to do that behavior because I, it was impossible doing that behavior. So it must have come from something greater than me. It's not about us trying to do something and say, here, I've done an action that surrenders. Surrender is let go of what has not worked. Remember, there are two requirements. The first requirement, the first requirement of taking step three is that we are convinced that a life run on self-will won't work. We are convinced that we can't do it on our efforts. And there is the surrender. It's not what we've done to have something happen, for that's not surrender. That's an effort to have some control over life to get a certain result. Surrender is void of actions to get something. They are, in essence, letting go of that which we've all known and does not work. Because in the void, uh, once we let go of that which we have always tried to do and we let it go, in that void and in the vacuum, rushes in God to fill the space we now allow God to have. Until we do that, there is no space for God to exist in us. We let it go, and God fills it up. Surrender really isn't about doing something to accomplish. It's about letting go, letting it go. And God then Thank you. of course. Okay, so there's the difference. I see. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Pamela, for the question. Sally, your turn. Thank you, Leah. Wow, Ruth, please let me say thank you first. Um, here's my question. Let me first explain. When I reached um, step three in the process of becoming recovered, which I did become recovered about six months ago, but when I reached step three with my sponsor, I was blocked. I thought because I had been praying for so many years and thought that I had this wonderful Christian experience that I was like, I could skip the first three steps, but my sponsor, thank God in her wisdom, heard something and recognized that I was blocked. And I had a bad case of self-reliance and playing God and honestly had a blind spot to even seeing it. Um, the word surrender was not in my vocabulary. My sponsor then said to me when I reached step three in the readings, 
I don't think we can go forward, which blew my mind because um, I didn't know how I was going to fix it. And I actually was, was prejudiced and thought, she just doesn't get me. She just doesn't understand my faith, you know. It, it was my own prejudice, but she was right. And she said to me, I want you to start writing these letters to God and emailing them to me. And, you know, she never really responded to my letters. She might have said, beautiful, nice. But honestly, it was in the writing of the letters that I recognized how mad I was at God and that I was blocked. Thank God I saw it finally for myself. And eventually she said to me, um, one morning out of nowhere, after I had already prayed and said, how am I going to finish this, this step two, three, God? Because we were stuck on this step for two months. I was writing letters to God, and she had this firm belief, you're not ready to go forward. And finally I prayed one evening and said something to her the next morning that I know included something about surrendering the process and the timing of working through the steps. And then she said to me, okay, I think something's changed. I think we can move forward. And perhaps she recognized the surrender in me. But here is my question to you, Ruth, because I have said this and shared this in my own personal shares. It seems to me that, that there is a, some people think that you can't go forward if you are blocked at step three and if there is um, something wrong with the flow. I think it's the best way to put it, that there just isn't a flow and you really are stuck at, you know, in this place of not really able to take step three um, and surrender even the self. Um, some people believe, oh, no, you don't have to because that will happen in the process of four, five, six, seven, eight, and 9. And when you reach step 11, that's when you really will be at step 11, you know, the other end of the of the picture. But for me, it really wasn't. I couldn't go forward into step four, according to my sponsor. And I because of my experience with becoming unblocked in the process of writing the letters, it seems to me like she might have been right. I wondered what you would say to this. Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not there with you and your sponsor. You're telling me it works, so I, I guess it worked. I, I, this, in retrospect, you say you were blocked, you didn't know it, working with her, you found that blockage and were able to let it go, so it worked. Um, I wouldn't want to overanalyze that. I mean, it worked. Great. It worked. Good. For, it, good. It worked. It's good. Uh, I can't say that's going to be the story for every single person that works program. It, it's it never. We're all unique human beings, although fundamentally we're the same. Um, so I, I don't really have much comment. I'm, I'm glad it worked. I mean, if it works, it works. So when the, when the sponsor would say to me, I don't think you can go forward, is that something that you would have agreed with? I guess that's really where I'm pointing my my question here, Ruth. I, I'm saying that each situation is um, not all situations are the same. I mean, it worked for you. It, you were apparently blocked. She noticed that, and she worked with you, and then you got unblocked. So that worked. Um, is that true for everybody that works step three? No, that's not true. I, I've worked with many where they're not blocked at all. I mean, that, that, that's just it's just not there. For whatever reason, not good or bad, there's not a good or bad better than one or the other, they come into step three and, and they're not blocked. Um, they look at this, they look at the actor, and they realize that they are that actor and they know it's an absolute failure. And they're willing to do whatever it takes. That they can't play God, obviously they've been a mess, and they're willing to let God run the show. And they're not blocked at three. And they go right through three and move on. It doesn't take very long. So, I, I mean, I've had many... I'm just saying there have been many things. 
it's it, your your way worked, then it worked. Um, it's not everybody's experience, but it was your experience, and you had somebody thankfully that helped you work through it, and you learned that you were blocked. I I, I can't really comment too much. I mean, it worked. Then that's good. It worked. Okay. Thank you, Ruth. Okay. Thank you, Sally. Anyone else with a question related to step three this morning? Good morning, yes, Margaret. Let's try again. Go ahead. I didn't catch anybody. I have Margaret. a question. Steve. Steve, good morning. Steve. And who's who good morning to you? And who else is on the line with a question? Margaret. Margaret. Okay, Steve and then Margaret, please. Thank you. Wonderful uh sharing. Thank you very much. I had a just a reality check here of uh, self-will when it's gone. Is that not a lifetime? I mean, uh, there's been a couple of people we've read about in history. Am I comparing this uh, elimination of self-will with uh, these saintly uh, types, or is this just a lifetime of working the steps? Uh, Because I hear... Now I'm no longer with self-will. I, 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 it, it seems, then I automatically go, well, that's a life of a saint. So I'm just calling for that, asking about that as a reality check. Thank you. It's a question. Yeah. Um, I, I've never said I don't have any self-will. Uh, if I do, I think you need to confront me. <laughs> no, I'm not. You know, I, I'm, I wasn't talking about you. I wasn't talking about you. I was talking about the the implications of a of a life without self will. It's I mean mm-hmm. because this is where we're striving, is it not? We're we are striving actually I would say if if the view is I'm trying to make sure I get rid of my self will, then I'm trying to get rid of my self will with my self will. And that is not what the big book's talking about. It's talking about realizing that a life run on self will is utter failure and in your omission of your absolute failure you're willing to let something other than you run the show. And you don't know how that's going to turn out. We stop focusing on results, and we start focusing on effort. We just do the effort God wants us to do. Whatever God wants to do, we do it. We don't care about results anymore. Uh, so right. They, um, so I guess, yeah, maybe saints have done that. I, I, I don't know, but even when you read some of these things that are saints, they, they have talked about their own struggles. So... I don't want to get too hung up on a label. I, I, I don't really oh. care about the label. I just care about the directions the book tells me to do. And then I find out that without me knowing it, I seem to be less upset at things, or I seem to be less Yeah. Or I, 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 guess, to, I, I guess I kind of knew the answer. I was just, uh, it's, it's a process rather than a, uh, you know, a perfection rather than progress rather than perfection. Because to me, perfection would be, a total life of God's will through me. I mean, total God's will. That would be, uh, well. Well, even the belief that I, um, you know, the, for me, the and I've been taught that the purpose of life is never to be perfect. The purpose of life is to be complete and whole. Complete and whole. To be all that I was ever meant to be according to God's directions for me. It's not to be perfect. Cause, see, that's some contrived idea in my mind yeah. that I want to achieve, and that is not what the big book is about. That's not what the program is about. It's about to be complete and whole. And one of the things that I found, and again, this is many years later. I mean, we're now, you know, 
um, at least maybe 15 years abstinent. I'm, I'm not even going to know the exact time. But I realized one day, and I was praying, and all of a sudden it occurred to me that what, um, you know, and I, I, just, I just got this energy that the, this step I was going to take had nothing to do with me. It wasn't going to do anything to help me, really, but it was for the betterment of the world. And I was to take an action that made the world a better place, but it wasn't about me getting any, it wasn't about me, that we ultimately get out of ourselves, hopefully, and not that I do this all the time, but we get out of ourselves, hopefully enough, that we actually take actions that we don't see how it serves us in any way, and we don't care. We're just doing what God tells us to do, and it's going to make the world better if we do it. Yeah, and fantastic. And that's a whole yeah. new level, because when we go through these 12 steps the first time, it's just to try to get ourselves to attain a relationship with God and to improve it so you know, that we can have our lives the way they should be, so we can live according to the way God wants them to be. But, but then we begin to be used by God beyond ourselves. There comes a point where you become responsible to do actions for others in which ways you don't even have any understanding why you're doing it, but you just know you're supposed to do it. You know, I'm real recently, I, I got a sense that I am supposed to go to Honduras. It has the highest per capita rate of murder of any country in the world, and I'm supposed to go there and help people there. Well, I didn't get that idea. That idea came to me, and I knew that idea came from God, and God said, go. I don't know what's going to happen. I have no idea. People said, where are you going to stay? I don't know. Don't know. It's not, it, I just know that um, I'm going with a delegation, so, I mean, those plans are being made, and I don't care. It doesn't matter. They'll just let me know when I need to know them. But I know that it will be a life-changing event because I'm supposed to go there and help some people. I don't know what it means. I don't know what will happen. I don't know what will be gained from it. It doesn't matter. It's not about me. It's about them. Fantastic. So when I get that energy, then it's a different energy than even trying to take care of me, trying to live according to the way I think, you know, as best, you know, I'm, I'm hearing these directions from God. Well, okay, what am I supposed to do now to make myself better? You'll be yeah. used to be making the world better. Eventually you will be used by that. Yeah, and it's, it just seems to me being whole and being complete is a lifetime endeavor, thank God. Otherwise, there'd be no room for improvement. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, thank you Steve. And we'll move on to Margaret. Oh, good morning, Leia. Good morning, Vision, for you. Good morning, Ruth. Uh, I am. I heard the whole talk. I didn't. I had to come off for some of the uh, sharing, which I'll pick up later. But um, I, I wouldn't just say thank you because I was a bit confused, which you know isn't hard to do for me. But, but I kept thinking that when I was restless, irritable, and discontent, you know, and I learned here I'm not going to rise above human. Thank God. Uh, I was always looking, oh, I must have missed something in 4 and 9, because I felt like I was working 10, 11, and 12. So I was always trying to go back, you know, backtracking and think, what did I miss? You know, what did I miss? I'm looking, looking, looking. And, you know, it's been a little while now, but for me, I did come to the conclusion it was step three uh, a little while ago. And that that this, and I, what I liked what you said is that <laughs> I can't make it go away. I can't, I can't, um, I can't make it go away with self. I mean, that was, of course, the other thing I would do. I could always tell how crazy I was by the number of self-help books I had at the end of my table, always trying to make parts of my personality go away, which I was absolutely unable to do. So this was just like a confirmation of where God was, has been taking me, that just this um, 
sense of, and I love the way that you took the pages and just went, you know, over almost each sentence. And, of course, I still find myself there. So I just wanted to say that that um, this was a missing link for me for, for quite a while. I was searching in steps 4 and 9, and then I searched diligently in steps 10, 11, and 12, which all was helpful, don't get me wrong, you know. But I think that, um, you know, I came to the conclusion that I, I, I was missing something in steps 2 and 3. So um, this was really helpful to me, and I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. Anyone else this morning? Questions? This is, this is Toby. Toby, your turn. Thank you. Um, I've been kind of blown away by listening this morning. I um, was supposed to call my sponsor, and I said I couldn't get off the phone because I really needed to hear what you had to say. My confusion for myself is I've been in relapse. I've been through the steps, um, and I've been in relapse, and I realize in talking, or listening, I should say, that it's step three, that I haven't been willing to, to at this point, turn my life and will over to the care of God that evidently there's some fear of if I do that, and I don't know what the fear is. And I was wondering two things. Can you speak to that right now, and could I possibly have your number and talk to you um, offline as well? Okay, all right. So, um, yes, you can have my number. It is on the contact list. Um, and I can give it to you. As far as fear, let me just go back uh, a little now. You say, are you in relapse? That means you right now are eating compulsively or not? Yes, I am. Okay, so your actions have already answered your question. You are not willing to turn your will and your life over to God because you're eating compulsively. Correct. Even though I say the words, the actions do not follow. They do not follow. So you... I, according to this book, entire abstinence is what Dr. Silkworth says, then for me I would not have taken step one. So to try to work step three and have not taken step one is building a house on sand. There is no foundation. There's no, you're, you're trying to skip something and just hop on over and talk about three, and you need to go back to one because you're not abstinent. You're not of a clear enough mind to even make a decision. You're all clouded up drunk on food. Right. So it really is step one. If you're not you don't yeah. have our absence. We have to do the directions exactly as they're giving in the book. And the book says very clearly, Dr. Selfwork says, entire abstinence. Entire means entire. There's no wiggle room. You haven't taken step one. And if you haven't taken step one, then it is only a way to bypass um, you know, that fact and just kind of leapfrog over and start talking about three and let's work three when I haven't taken one. Um, it, it does not. I do not see it working that way. Um, and you, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I think that they need to be working, worked in the order in which they're given. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My answer is okay. step one. Book. Okay. You can talk about three when you've gotten through two, but right now you're in one. Okay. And your telephone number? May I have that? Yeah. It's six one eight. 
463-0619. Okay, thank you, Ruth. You're welcome. Thank you, Toby, for the question. Anyone else this morning with a question for Ruth? Hi, I have a question. Your name, please? Uh, my name is Devorah Leo or Deborah. I live in New York City, and uh, I would like to know the definition of abstinence because I found out there's a lot of programs. There's a 90-day program. There's a how program. There's a regular way. There's a lot more. There's uh, food addicts, and there's different ideas of abstinence, and some people feel uh, you got to be abstinent exactly what your sponsor eats, and some people say uh, you should go by a natural path, and some people say you should go by a nutritionist, and some people thank, say you thank you your sponsor. So thank what you is abstinence exactly? Like for me, I want to know. Well, I, I think we're interchanging two terms. One is food plan and one is abstinence. And, yes, there are many types of food plans. Uh, but abstinence isn't very complicated. In fact, I think that, this is my opinion, I think the disease comes in and infiltrates the fellowship when we keep claiming there's all these definitions of abstinence. There isn't. There's one. There's only been one. There's always been one. There probably will only be one definition of abstinence. So why don't we all agree on what's abstinence? Because if we do not agree on what is abstinence, we don't have unity. I can say about AA, they don't seem to have a problem understanding what sobriety means. Everybody seems to understand sobriety means no alcohol. They don't seem to have a problem. They know that they're all supposed to not consume alcohol. So we, at this point, don't seem to have a common definition of abstinence. So I'm just, the definition of abstinence, I mean, to take it to the the most key basic, get it down, is to be refrain from. If you go to the dictionary, it means refrain from. I even asked the founder of OA. I said, what did you mean when you coined the term? She said it meant to refrain from. In this case, compulsive overeating. So uh, to refrain from compulsive overeating, some people do undereating, as a way to control their overeating. Um, But to refrain from, we want to make it very complicated. It is not to refrain from. You say, well, what are you refraining from? Not complicated either. I have to refrain from any food ingredient in which when I put it in my body, I have a physical allergy yielding a craving. I have to refrain from whatever those food ingredients are that generate a physical allergy yielding a craving. I cannot put that ingredient or ingredients in my body because I have an abnormal reaction to, because that's what allergy means, abnormal reaction to that ingredient when it comes in my body. So abstinence simply means to refrain from putting into my body any and all substances that cause that that allergic reaction to it. All right? So uh, I would say work with a sponsor, a recovered sponsor. This is what I do. I say to the person, get out a piece of paper. I want you to write down on that paper any and everything you have ever successfully controlled, uh, attempted to control, not been able to control, are thinking about controlling. Uh, There's the key, control. 
because you don't have it. You never try to control something that's not out of your control because it's not an issue. You never even think about it that way. So put it all down. Then come back with me and call me or meet with me, and we go over that list. And if we go over that list and we say, I'm going to say there's 20 items on that list. We'll just say that. And if 17 of those items on that list have a key food ingredient, 17 of them do, 85% of the time, that should tell you something. Don't eat any food with that key food ingredient in any foods ever again. That is not more complicated than that. You cannot put foods in your body that have that key food ingredient in them because when you do, you have a physical allergy yielding a craving when you consume those foods. So you can use whatever food plan you're going to use. It doesn't really matter to me, but you better not put that key food ingredient in your body. So let's say you do that list and you find this one ingredient. So we have this huge room. There are thousands and thousands of food options, literally. And inside that box is one thing, one thing only, just one little item in that box. And all you want to do is go over and get something out of that box. My job as a sponsor is to say, you can't go in that box. If you go in that box, you're not asking because you already told me you made a commitment not to go in it. And I'm pointing it out to you. You do whatever you want, but I'm pointing it out to you. You're not to go in that box. You pick anything else. You've got thousands of options. You want to go in that box and pull that thing out. But you can't pull that thing out because when you do, you have a physical allergy or a craving. You can't go in that box. The alcoholic can't go in that box and take alcohol out. He's got many, many things he can drink. He can drink water. He can drink whatever he wants to want, but he can't drink alcohol. But he wants to go in that box and pull out the alcohol because that's the only thing he wants to drink. And that's the only thing you want to eat is what's in that box. It's not more complicated than that. You must refrain from consumption of that item that's in that box. Your food plan will be your food plan, but absence means do not open up that box and not pull out that thing or two or three. Usually it's only one, two, or three things. Rarely have, I think only once in all the times I've sponsored people, has it been any more than those one, two, or three things. Eat any food you want, but don't, don't put that item in your, don't put that food ingredient in your body, or those two or three. That's, that's all it is. It's more, not more complicated than that. We make it complicated because we don't want to be abstinent. Your question about this plan and that plan, that's not the issue. That's going to keep you away from not knowing what the what's in the box and what you're not supposed to take out of that box because you're not start start bouncing around from this plan to that plan to that person's idea. Work with somebody to help you know what's in, what's in that box. And don't you ever open that box and get in there ever again. That's, it's, it's not more complicated than that. Thank okay. you very much, Ruth, on that. And thank you, Devorelea, for that question. Any other questions related to Step 3 this morning? Step 3, the presentation that Ruth offered. Any questions? It's KBS. Good morning. Okay, let's try those names again, please. KBS. Okay, Skadia, good morning. And who else was on the line? Beth from Illinois. Okay, let's start with Skadia. Thank you. Okay, on page 60, I see that the first requirement is that we be convinced that any lifestyle on self-will can hardly be a success. I guess that's what I heard you speaking about. On that basis, we are almost always in collision with something or somebody. And this is my question. Even though our motives are good, I have a little bit uh, difficulty with um, differentiating that my motives are really good. They really mean good, and now to not to say nothing, just to let go and let God. I feel sometimes I could I could be cheating something that could really be benefiting the other. 
and uh, by not saying nothing, just because I understand self-will. This is maybe connected to my self-will, but yet when I when I have something good within that I want to share to to help someone, even though I know they have their God in within them that will show them eventually that it's wrong to be, let's say, all night with a book or all night with a computer because the next day they'll have they'll be zombies. How do I help myself to understand that even having good intention, I'm I'm really sincere about the question, should should be like kept to me and this is my question. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, and it's important they do note the motives are good. Okay, the motives are good but the motives from God are far better. So why don't we why would we ever go less than the best? Why don't we ever strive for to do what God wants us to do? Now if the motives are good in God's eyes, well then that is the very very best. Um, if the motives are good in our eyes, it is only our eyes because you know we do not see with our eyes, we see through our eyes. And we do not hear with our ears, we hear through our ears. That is we are always going to come through a filter if it's self-will, that filter then can, can really mess up our view. For we may believe it's good motives. Maybe a lot of people around us are doing things that seem, and we're doing the same thing, but it's still from our own limitations of self-will. We perceive their good motives. We perceive it, but we don't see, we don't see with our eyes. We see through our eyes. We see through self-will outward and see what is good motives. And we are fatally flawed if we believe that our self-will will be greater than God's will of what determining our good motives, don't we? Is that not an act of arrogance? To think that our, what we perceive as good is going to be the best that we can do? Isn't that cheating ourselves out of what is best according to what God wants? And I mean, logically, yeah, okay, that intellectually makes sense. But then when we look at our lives, what do we do when we point out, don't, this is a good motive, don't do that, and the person does it anyway? Do we feel some frustration? Do we feel some fear because of what may happen now because the person hasn't listened? Ah, when we feel fear, resentment, any decision based in fear is not a God-based decision. Any decision based in resentment is not a God-based decision. Because what happens is people don't follow what you say to do, right? And it says here that what usually happens, the show doesn't come off very well. Right, right here on page 61. He begins to think he doesn't, treat, he, he doesn't treat him right. He goes on to just realize, it's not working. I have to try harder. I have to point it out again. I have to maybe induce with some kind of bribe maybe to get it to happen. I really know it's a good motive. And while we're doing all that, it's stuff over and riot. We're not going to pull it off as good as God. I don't care how good we think our motives are. And we have to humble ourselves enough to say, whatever is good, I don't know. But you just give me directions and I'll do it. And then I look around and go, wow, that was better than anything I thought of. Wow, that was better than anything I was ever thinking of doing. Wow, you're pretty good, God. What did I think that I had the best motives? It's arrogant to think that our good motives are the ultimate good motives that we could ever perform. Thank you. 
Thank you, Skidia. And Beth, please go ahead with your question. Hi. Thank you so much. I do appreciate so much um, this meeting and and your excellent share. I, it just really brought home. I had really been squeaky clean when I came into program, lost 140 pounds, and then started thinking I could do it. I just am amazed at how strong this disease is. It just, when you start thinking at all that you can do it and let up on any of the disciplines, on any of the steps, on anything, then you just, I know it's just not full reliance on God and it's its letting the program slip. And thank you, God, I'm abstinent again. I was I am really anti-drinking, anti-drugs, anti-sex for my kids. And they were sitting there watching me, even if it was not weighed food, it's not abstinent for me because I am such a horrible food addict. I have got to have, I can binge on even the 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 category of food that is abstinent for me, if it's not controlled in in the size, I can go to town on it. So I am just the worst kind of food addict. Um, And I thought, you know, if my kids came home and said, well, I was mostly abstinent from sex, what would that mean to me? Oh, my gosh, there's a clear black and white there between um, compulsively following my behaviors uh, that are are away from God and and surrendering myself and coming to God. I was wondering. I I just want to continue to ramp it up. I know that following all of the steps daily, daily, daily on my knees is what I need to to purchase some insurance against another relapse. I was wondering what else you have uh, in addition to that to help me keep me on the straight and narrow. And I appreciate your um, suggestions. Uh, well, it um, volume doesn't necessarily yield higher quality. I mean, we improve the quality of the way we work the steps and whatever you find to supplement that. And there are things to supplement, and that's fine. I mean, they're an outside enterprise. You can do that. I've done them. No problem. But the foundation of the structure is always, for me, has been the 12 steps. So I just try to work it better. And I never, I never arrive. I never get it. I never have perfected anything, um, nor do I even try anymore. I just try to get the directions as best I can today and do them the best I can today. This morning it was to do this talk. That's all I have. <laughs> I haven't done the rest of the day. So um, I, I wouldn't, there isn't any, um, I, I would just continue to improve the quality of my recovery through the 12 steps, and if you want to use other things that supplement it well and enhance it, then that would be fine. Thank you. Thanks, Beth, for the question. This is Larissa. Yes, go ahead. Good morning, everyone. This is Larissa, grateful recovered compulsive overeater and relapsed survivor in New York. Thank you so much for your service. It's really been lovely to listen in. I, I guess my question is, is twofold. Um, the first has to do with, uh, this is something, you know, our job is to grow in understanding and effectiveness as we um, continue to live in steps 10, 11, and 12. And I have always felt that step three is part of 11 for me, that it's something I do all day, every day, that I have to remove. Because if I'm restless, irritable, discontented, if I'm noticing in my 10th step, if I'm noticing things cropping up, to me, my first reaction is, where's God, and is he running my life, or am I trying to run it? And I go back to that third step agreement. So in practice, um, when we get to that, that, uh, the, paragraph of that, the paragraphs about the actor, the first requirement, um, I'm just wondering, I have 
started requesting that my protégés read that from the first person as opposed to the we form to see if it hits home and resonates. And it usually it's so, it's so powerful to hear it when someone else is saying it. I'm just wondering in practice if you have ever um, opted to do that, if, if you have, a, you know, if there's a, a, a negative side to doing it that way, um, and, and if you'd like to sort of comment on that. Um, so it's the, the two paragraphs about the actor. I say, if you feel comfortable and up in, you know, for the parts that you feel comfortable doing so, speak from the I instead of the we. Um, you know, again, if you worked with somebody and you've tried that and it works, then it works. That's great. I think a previous question asked something to that, along that line. If something works, it works. And, and it helps you. Good. Um, well, well, hopefully it helps them <laughs> more so than, but yes. I mean, if, if it works and, uh, you know, um, I mean, sometimes they're, I mean, basic, I mean, not always, but I mean, basically, you know, some people are very, you know, the senses, you know, what they see, what they hear, and they're very, you know, like, just give me the facts, you know, and they kind of break it down through facts. Other people just know intuitively what to do. And then somebody said to you, uh, well, how do you know you? I don't know how I know. I just know. Well, I mean, how do you know? I don't know. I just know. And both are right. Uh, so some tend to be more, you know, fact-based, just, you know, laying out, and others are just intuitive in how they know something. And um, so if you're talking to somebody and you're an intuitive person and you just know and you have no idea how you know, but you do know, uh, it's probably God, and then do it. I mean, if it comes from something deep within you and have a sense of rightness about it, move forth. Do it, and it will work. Um, so, if this has worked for you, then it, that's great. If it if, uh, if it didn't work, it maybe was self will and right, and you thought you could get them to get what you what you think they should have at that point, and that doesn't work regardless of how great the idea is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it either it either resonates or it doesn't, right? It either resonates or it doesn't yeah. for each person if they're in that space. Um, the other question I have is more. Um, I, I part of my agreement to turning my will and my life over to the care of God, um, God gave me this emblazoned image. And I, I don't have a brain that works in imagery. I have a brain that tends to work very analytically with words. Um, but so I have this third step image where it's like a ship of sea with a big, you know, beautiful blue skies, absolutely peaceful and serene. And God is at the helm of that ship. And as a willful addict, I'm constantly saying, God, this is lovely, but I'd like to steer. And and the way I view recovery is that it's not that I never put my hands on that wheel anymore. I, I know the distinction when my hands are on the wheel and when they're not. And I make that decision again, God, you do a way better job. Please take back the helm because I find storms and shipwreck and shallows. And, you know, I don't steer that ship of my life anywhere near as effectively as God does. So, And I always invite um, the people I work with to sort of create that third step image for themselves because I really believe as we get to 10, 11, and 12 that that growing our spiritual lives, that growing our connection to God is all about remembering to re-up that decision of this, I'm not in charge. He is what's his will for me today. So I'm just wondering if you've... Um, found anything like that helpful for yourself? Like if there's, I sort of felt that I needed a physical way to remember to let go and let God, and that image that was given to me helped me remember to do that all day, every day. So thought I'd bring that up and ask your thoughts around how you let go and let God all day long. Yeah, I, it's, again, kind of coming back, uh, an image really helps you. Uh, uh, this visual image in your mind really helps you. And and it really, you know, kind of seals it in, you know, this is it. 
Um, another person, visual image, you just don't, they don't get the visual image. You know, just, just give me some words. And somehow I, I get it by these words I put down on a paper. You know, both ways are right again. There isn't one that's right and there isn't one that's wrong. It, whatever works. Yours of Im image works, then that's what you would use. Um, what I have found now that I've been sponsoring, you know, like 25 years, that early on in my sponsorship, I would give them what worked for me. You know, here it is. This is my, this is it, you know, here. And I have learned through time that my way maybe doesn't resonate with them. And they have a different way to incorporate information, to, uh, it, it's not again right or wrong. And so I've learned other that are not my preferences, but just cumulative through working with sponsor ease that they may have a different way and that's good too. And so now I don't have one approach. I don't have mine. I have a collection of many. Um, but it still comes back to what God, because I'm an intuitive. So I, what is it you want me to do? And so, you know, what do you want me to do? Okay, then I, I bring forth. Sometimes I bring forth something forth that I didn't even know was there, that I've never even used. But it worked. So um, I would say, like, for example, um, some people, when they read the book, some people, when they read this book, they have to read every single word and just get every little word. And they break it down into very minute de detail. And uh, let's say a paragraph is all that we'll work on. And they'll just work on every little word. And, and then they're done with that paragraph. Okay? I've had other people that will want to read that chapter and see what really just, just, just really moves them deeply. And they'll really focus on what overall concept they got. And then they'll read it again, and they'll do it again. And they'll keep reading it over and over and over again, resonating with what they're getting. Okay, that works for you. Some people take the big picture, come down to details. Some people take the little details and go up to the big picture. I don't care. If that works for you, you do that. Because by the end, I'll know anything you haven't mentioned, and I'll point it out. But I'll let you go ahead and do it your way, and that's fine. And you'll get to the and we do it enough times reading that. I'll eventually point out something you maybe haven't mentioned in each time you've read it, and we'll still get it done. I don't really care. Some people would learn it better by listening to um, uh, a tape or a CD. They can somehow hear it up if they hear a voice. Other people get it better if they actually read words on paper. Some people get it if they see a, v a DVD, you know, and they watch and hear. Again, I don't care. Doesn't matter to me. If you want to listen to some Joe and Tar Charlie tape, you do that. If you want to read the book instead, you do that. I don't care. So from my experience is I am willing to do whatever. If it works for you and you're still getting what you need to get, and the next person I'm sponsoring, and when you hang out, I'm going to talk to somebody else, and they're going to do it in a different way, I don't care. Again, we're going to get to the same destination, you and me, and I don't care how you get there as long as you're, you're doing what the big book tells you to do. So uh, one of the things I've learned is to, I'm willing, it doesn't have to be my way, I'm willing to hear anything that will get there where you'll learn what you need to learn. And I don't need to run the show. I don't need to tell you you have to work the program my way. I mean, there are some core things. You have to do the steps. You have to do them in order. I mean, there are some overall or overarching ideas. But the specific way in which you learn the material of the big book, of that, that you Whatever. Their work is fine. I don't care. So your idea is fine. If it works, it's good. If you find it works for somebody else, good. I think it is our um, tolerance and flexibility 
through time that we learn multitudes of ways of learning. And we're willing to incorporate all of those in when we work with a sponsoree. At least that's what I've learned. I don't know if that helps you. Thank you so much. Now, it's the two cars to drive in, and then this one faces like our little four-wheeler shed, you know. That might be cute, too, instead of... I think someone's unmuted. Thank you, Larissa, for your question. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Yeah, uh, Ruth, it's just approaching 1030. Would you like to take a few more questions, or should sure. we... Yeah, I can... Yes. Take, yeah, I can okay. Okay, any other questions related to Step 3? This is Janet. Janet, your turn. Yes, uh, I would just like to know, Ruth, if you would just repeat the last four digits of your phone number. 0619. 0619. Thank you so much. I have so, so appreciated this, uh, your talk this morning, just taking in every moment of it, and uh, I hope mm-hmm. that I might be able to touch base with you at some point. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you, Janet. Anyone else with a question related to Step 3, please? Star one ton mute. This is Fran. Um, thank Fran, you so much. For, thank you so much for your share this morning. I got on at nine, and I thought, oh, I'm not going to get on. This started at eight thirty. It's only a half hour. Because in my mind, I was sure it was a one-hour meeting. It turns out <laughs> this is the most um, uh, amazing talk and, and, and sharing and, and fellowship. Um, I want to go back, and so, so many people have gone back to this, but one of the most profound things that I heard you say today was um, the, the idea of self-will and using self-will to get rid of self-will, which obviously just sounds so illogical, is illogical. Um, which is sort of blowing my mind because I'm sort of a very type A, set a goal and achieve it uh, type of person. That's how I work in sort of my work life and other aspects of my life, which is not working with it when it comes to food and uh, actually obviously is not working in my life. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about the release of the self, of self-will? Is it truly just in the surrender and just asking God to help you do it. Because there's obviously, if I can't do it myself, if getting rid of self-will is something I can't do, then the only alternative is just to give it to God. Is that ultimately the answer? That's what it's all about. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? Yeah, I mean, you said the thing about asking God to help you. And uh, for me, I found that was self-will, trying to get rid of self-will, because God doesn't need my directions. Um, what I found for me, and I started there. I mean, I, you know, I asked. And, um, but I found that I am, that, that's me trying to have God give me uh, what I want so now I can get what I want. Say, I want to be abstinent. Well, that sounds like a noble goal. I want to be abstinent. So I'm going to pray to God to be abstinent. God, help me be abstinent. God, give me strength to be abstinent, blah, 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 blah. And then I realized, who am I to ask God to give me anything? I should quit praying for God to help me. I should pray to help God. So my my prayer 
has changed. I pray to just help God. What do you want? And if that means I don't even get abstinent, then I'm willing to take that. I'm willing to take whatever the answer is, whatever the results are, fine. You, what do you want me to do to help you? What are the directions you have for me now? What it, just, you know, I'll do my best. Um, I'm going to listen as best I can. Just tell me what you want me to do. So there's no qualifiers. I don't ask God to help me. I ask to help God in my prayer. What do you want me to do to help you today? What is it you want from me today? It's a different prayer. Completely, really, in a way. Because the first one is really an attempt to continue self-will run self-will. You know, I mean, self-will is going to run the show because I'm asking God to help me continue to run the show. Now, we don't think that's what we're praying, but that's what I prayed. I didn't know it for a long time. I was praying for God to help me so I could get what I thought I should have. I'm going to ask for God to help me be abstinent. That's what I'm supposed to be. But you see, it was me trying to get something from God in order to get what I thought I should have. Mm. Not, wow. not a sur- that's not surrender. That's still self-war and riot. So change wow. the prayer. Thank you very much. Ask God to help God. Okay? Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Fran. Anyone else this morning? Going once, twice, and three times. I'm assuming all minds are cleared. Ruth, thank you for your beautiful presentation this morning and spending time answering all the questions that we have. And uh, thank you for all your time and energy with us. We always appreciate you visiting our line. And I'm going to close the meeting with the reading from page 164, a reading that we use to close all the meetings on A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.